This is Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. Well, hello, party people. How are you today? Uh, that was creepier than I thought it was going to be. Oh, well, moving onward. Um, it is True Crime Tuesday. Welcome. If you're new here, my name's Jana. I'm your host of Cabernet and True Crime. Uh, that's it. (laughs) This is what I do. If you haven't noticed by now on the website, if you are a patron or just someone in general who likes to go to my website every now and again, I've updated everything. I have spent, well, today is Saturday, not to ruin the surprise or the allure. I don't think anybody thinks I record these on Tuesday because that seems wildly nonsensical and awful planning, which there have been times late, late Monday night I have recorded. That's about as close as I try to cut it. (laughs) The amount of anxiety that would take me to wait that long just makes me very anxious thinking about it. Um, so yeah, where was I going with that? Oh, the website's completely updated. All the patron links are updated. All of my research notes are posted. It is all done. It took me like six hours today to get caught up. Hopefully, now that I've made the jump to get that caught up, it won't be a problem anymore. But I think I've said that before. (laughs) So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, but as of today, 8-24-2019, everything is uploaded. This is ready to post when it's done. I'm on my A-game for right now keyword for right now. Um, so there's two, two prefaces I have to make before today's podcast, and it's about the podcast, not a normal sidebar like I usually do, which is completely unrelated and strange, but this is actually related. I'm going to come out and say that I wasn't sure. I thought Beverly Allett was somebody else, (laughs) and it wasn't until I actually started researching her that I realized that she's not exactly who I thought she was. She's actually not even close to who I thought she was. So, the person who I thought Beverly Allett was, was a woman in, I want to say, it's either like England or like Tennessee. (laughs) I realize they're two very different places. But I'm pretty sure she killed her boyfriend's children because her boyfriend wanted to leave her. It's not Diane Downs, it's not, it didn't happen in a car, it happened in, like, a bedroom. It was, like, her kids and her friends, her, for kids' friends. Yes, thank you. Um, I don't remember that person's name. I cannot, for the life of me, remember that person. And I'm pretty sure I saw it on, not Forensic Files. It must have been one of those other weird Netflix shows, like, Women Who Kill, Nurses Who Kill, occult crimes, all my favorite shows, but I cannot remember what it is, so if you know what it is, message me, because it's literally, it's literally killing me to not know. Um, the second thing that I would like to say about this, um, episode is that I have realized that I hate the term angel of death. I don't think that makes any sense to me, and I, when I looked up the technical definition of, like, angel of mercy or angel of death, they say it's a, quote, rare type of serial killer who is employed as a caregiver and intentionally harms or kills people under their care. Um, what I'm going to say is, first of all, they're not very rare. 
because I feel like everybody's an angel of death now. If you Google the term angel of death, even on that site where they had the definition, the definition may have come from Wikipedia, they list, like, known angels of death, and there's, like, 15 serial killers on that page alone. So how can you tell me that's a rare... Right? Or is that just me? I hate that term. Now, see, I guess, like, angel of mercy, I can kind of make more sense, like like a Kevorkian type deal, I, or people, serial killers who believe that they're putting people out of their misery, I suppose I can understand. I just, I don't like the phrase, all I'm going to say. Right off, just going to let you know, right off the rip. Don't like it, hate it. Um, yeah, okay, that's, that's that rant. Also, I have a problem with the term Lonely Hearts Killers because I feel like there's like 55 of those too, but that's, it, it is what it is. It is, it's just my own personal gripe. It is what it is. I realized in the last podcast that you can really hear when I'm fidgeting around on the ground of my closet, so I'm trying my hardest to stay still this episode and to keep my mic an equal distance, and well, by mic, I mean my my phone. (laughs) I'm going to try to keep it an equal distance away from myself. See, what happens is I start fidgeting, and then my phone gets really close to my face, and then I realize that I'm yelling into your face because of that. Yeah. So, um, I'm going to try really hard. Also, you can hear me rubbing the floor of my closet. (laughs) This sound. That's me when I'm trying to talk or like get a thought through and I start rubbing the ground. I realize that you can hear that. Normally I don't listen to my, the, this pod. Well, I, okay. Weird and embarrassing fact. I listen to my own podcast every now and again, just to hear it. (laughs) That's really embarrassing thing to admit. It's fine. Um, And I realized, like, the other day I listened to it at work, and I could hear the fact that I can rub. I rub the ground when I'm doing this. So I'm trying really hard today to, like, stop being me. (laughs) Gonna try to be somebody else today. All right, then. Let's just get right the fuck into it, because I've already wasted six minutes of your valuable time rambling. So, Beverly Allett. She was born on October 4th, 1968, in Corby Glen, UK. Don't know where that is. Didn't even look it up. United Kingdom. And that's a lie. I did look it up. But I'm trying to get over... Yeah, listen. It's fine. Um, so her dad worked in a liquor store, and her mom was a school custodian. Growing up, she went to Charles Reed Secondary Modern School um, because she failed the exam to get into Kestevin and Grantham's Girl School. So I had to look up that what that meant because that doesn't mean anything to me. Um, but basically, if you're from America and you don't know the difference, um, it's basically the difference between um, going to a public school versus like a very elusive private school. So she went to public school because she failed the testing to get into private school. Um, so she babysat for side cash and she quit school at 16, but started taking a course in nursing at the Grantham College. So it seemed like she had a relatively normal life. I mean, who hasn't failed to get into a school they wanted to? Or is that just, is that just me? (laughs) But, um, so she had a normal life. You know, things were good for Beverly. But, um, even when she was growing up, Beverly was strange. And it's because she would wear, like, bandages and casts even when she was completely healthy. Like, she could have nothing physically wrong with her, but she would wear casts or, like, big bandages and, like, for the attention of it. Um, she would go to the hospital for the slightest of injuries and sometimes no injury at all. And at one point, 
like this is ridiculous and it might be a rumor but it's still fun to tell um she convinced the doctor to take out her completely healthy appendix like she just wanted it out of her um so she was known to shop around for doctors and once one started catching on to like what she was doing she would just go to the next doctor so she was almost like those people who go to different doctors to get like prescription meds basically that but she didn't want the medicine she just wanted like casts and stuff which is weird so apparently also underneath that she was very aggressive growing up um lashing out at anyone and everyone including her boyfriend at the time and um he had said after everything was over with that she was so manipulative um that she would lie and say she was pregnant when she wasn't and other insane things like that and obviously that relationship didn't last um and she was also known to be aggressive to herself um which included like often self-harming which would come from that aggression and also probably that attention factor that she wanted um because she was in the hospital all the time her attendance for the college course um for nursing was really really poor and she actually failed her nursing exams um, but somehow she was able to get a job at Grantham and Kestevan Hospital in Lincolnshire. She was hired in 1991 as a state-enrolled nurse and assigned to Children's Ward Number 4. The hospital was in, like, vastly desperate need for help. Um, it was super understaffed. So she got a six-month contract to see how it would go. So there were only two day shift nurse and one night shift nurse, and I think she was, she ended up being on the night shift, is what I've gathered. Um, it sounds like maybe they knew she didn't have, she didn't pass, but because she was a nursing student and maybe she got far enough that they were like, yeah, sure, we'll take you for six months and just help us out. So I couldn't find her date of hire, but I'm assuming it didn't take long for her crimes to start since she only worked, I think I have it written down, Boop, 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 boop. 59 days. So she only worked for 59 days. I'm assuming she didn't waste a whole lot of her time. All right. So um, on February 1st, 1991, seven-month-old Liam Taylor was admitted to the hospital with a chest infection. Beverly, so she, that, that she was a fresh-faced, eager nurse. She went out of her way to tell the parents that like Liam was going to be in great hands and that they should go to the home for the evening and get some rest. Like they were exhausted. Their little boy had been sick. So she's like, go home. I got it covered. Like your boy's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. So um, the next morning, the parents came back and Beverly had informed them that during the night, Liam had suffered a respiratory emergency, but he was fine. Like he had had something happen and, you know, they were able to treat him and he ended up being okay. Um, then that night, the following night, um, Beverly picked up an extra shift uh, that night to watch over the boy specifically, and the parents stayed the night in the hospital as well. So Liam had had another crisis that second night he was in the hospital, and Beverly stayed with him alone in the room. Um, so he had recovered, but then Liam took a turn for the worse. So he was deathly pale, he had red splotches covering his face, and Beverly requested an emergency resuscitation team. So Liam had suffered a cardiac arrest, and despite everybody's best efforts to revive him completely, he was left completely dependent on machines to stay alive. So his parents had to make the heartbreaking decision with medical advice to remove the infant from child support, and the cause of death was listed as a heart failure. Beverly Allett was never questioned about the boy's death, and although at the time her co-workers were confused that the alarms, which were meant to go off if and when the boy stopped breathing, never sounded. 
On March 5th, 1991, Timothy Hardwick, an 11-year-old boy um, who had cerebral palsy, was admitted to, the, to Ward 4 um, after he experienced an epileptic fit. Beverly Alec took over his... Avis, ooh, wow, what happened there? Sorry. Um, Beverly Allett took over as his caregiver, and at some point she was left alone with the boy. Bad news bears. Again, she summoned the emergency resuscitation team after he lost his pulse and turned blue, and the team was unable to save him, and the cause of death was blamed on the boy's epilepsy. On March 3rd, 1991, which was two days before the death of Timothy Hardwick, a one-year little, a one- year old little girl named Kaylee Desmond um, had been having problems with a chest infection. She was admitted into Ward 4, and by March 8th, she had seemed to be through the thick of it, and it appeared Kaylee was recovering well, like she was doing fine. Um, at some point that day, though, Kaylee went into cardiac arrest. The, resuscit- the resuscitation team this time was able to revive her. She was transferred to another hospital, and she survived. At the other hospital, though, physicians found a weird puncture in the girl's armpit, and strangely enough, there was an air bubble um, underneath the skin near the um, needle puncture. Um, they kind of brushed it off as an accidental injection, and no one was ever, ever held responsible for it. Paul Crampton was only five months old when he was admitted to Ward 4. He had um, a bronchial infection. This was on March 20th, 1991. So... Beverly had been attending him alone when she asked for assistance, and it looked like the boy was suffering from insulin shock. Um, so apparently he had almost entered a coma from his insulin being too high on three separate occasions, um, all of which Beverly was left alone with the child. Um, doctors couldn't figure out why his insulin was all over the place, so he was transferred to another hospital, and he survived. Five-year-old Bradley Gibson was admitted to, um, he was admitted the day after Paul Crampton. He was seeking treatment for pneumonia. He had suffered two cardiac arrests, each occurring, um, after he was left alone with Beverly. After the first attack, Beverly tested, or Beverly, Bradley tested too high for insulin levels, and he was transferred to another hospital and lived. On March 22nd, 1991, two-month-old Henry Chan, um, almost died. He, um, he had been in the hospital for a fall, I think. That was what I presume they said he had an injury from a fall, so I'm assuming that's what brought him to the hospital. Um, and he also had a skull fracture. Uh, so he was not doing well. Um, after, like, Beverly had been taking care of him. He was not doing okay. And then the recession, resuscitation team arrived. He took really well to the oxygen, and he survived. Um, on... April 1st, 1991. So, Becky and Katie Phillips were two-month-old twins. They had been in the hospital under observation after premature birth. So, from what I read later, it almost sounds like they had been taken home. Um, They didn't stay in the hospital for the two months, but they were coming in and out of the hospital frequently because of their premature birth and the issues that come along with it, also that they were twins. So, on April 1st, 1991, um, Becky, the one twin, was brought to Ward 4, um, because she had some gastrointestinal issues. So on April 3rd, which is two days later, Beverly requested resuscitation because um, she said Becky appeared hypoglycemic, and so that is when your blood sugar dips below normal levels. So symptoms could have included, they didn't say, but I just think this was interesting, 
symptoms have could have included dilated pupils, pallor, sweating, and heart palpitations. So they, the rest of the doctors couldn't find a cause for her ailment, and she was sent home with her parents so they could watch her through the night, which seems kind of weird. I don't know why you wouldn't keep a sick infant there, like at the hospital, why you would send it home with their parents, but that's not my job. So, um, Becky wouldn't settle that night and was crying out in pain, um, but a doctor came and checked on her, said he thought it maybe was just colic, and Becky died during the night, and no cause of death could be determined. So, after Becky died from unknown causes, uh, the twins had brought the second, or the twins, the twins' parents had brought the second twin, Katie, to the hospital because they're like, holy crap, we had a twin, we had one of our daughters die, like, let's make sure our other daughter is okay. So, Katie was left alone with Beverly, the girl stopped breathing, and luckily she was revived successfully, but unluckily she suffered another attack two days later. Revived. Spell things correctly, Jana. Sorry. Um, so, so she suffered another... She stopped breathing two days later. Okay. So Katie's lungs were collapsed and she was transferred to another hospital. The staff at the hospital found that she had broken five ribs. So she had five broken ribs and significant brain damage from going without um, oxygen for so long. So Katie was left with partial paralysis, cerebral, cerebral palsy, sight and hearing damage from her stay at the hospital. Katie's mom asked Beverly if she would be the girl's godmother after she saved the girl's life. Let that sink in for a second. That Beverly became this girl's godmother. Can you even imagine, like, find after the matter, finding out when when I guess when it came out that what Beverly had done? Could you imagine how disgusted you would be with the person that you made that like you trusted them, like they played you so hard and you trusted them that much, and like that person was a monster. I can't even imagine how mad the twins' parents could have been, like. They probably wanted to kill Beverly themselves. I wouldn't, and I wouldn't blame them. Like that's just insane. So, Beverly was super happy to be the girl's godmother. Gross. Michael Davidson. He was six. He was admitted to the hospital after being shot with an air rifle pellet. Um, he had to have the pellet surgically removed. He was put in por- in ward four for post-operative care. Um, apparently it's appeared he had been injected with insulin multiple times through the IV port in his hands. His fingers had turned purple and he was found unconscious, but they were able to revive him and he was okay. Uh, Claire Peck, who was 15 years old, was admitted, oh, 15 months, I, there's always one thing that trips me up when I'm writing this and then I, I, I'm like, no, Jana, fix it. And then I fix it on my thing, but I still say the wrong thing in the podcast. I don't know why my brain does that. Claire Peck, who was 15 months old, was admitted to Ward 4 after experiencing an asthma attack. She was put on a ventilator and then was left alone under Beverly's care. She went into cardiac arrest but was revived. Later, um, the girl suffered a second episode and she did not survive the second time. So after the death of Claire, Dr. Nelson Porter, he was a consultant for the hospital, got involved. He was, like, alarmed with the number of cardiac arrests in the last two months of Ward 4. He's like, what the actual fuck is going on here? Why are we having so many people getting sick? What is going on? Which is, I mean, I'm almost surprised it took two months to catch on. Maybe he caught on before then, but then Claire was, like, the last straw of, like, a fourth death. And, you know, it just seemed, at that point, way too fishy. Um, so... 
Claire's autopsy came back with her cause of death being, quote, natural. He still launched an investigation into the cases. Like, he didn't let the, the prolif- preliminary the preliminary autopsy be, like, say-all, be-all. He's like, no, we're actually going to, we're going to go further into this. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Nelson Porter, for finally catching on to the nonsense that was going on at this hospital. Um, so more testing was done on Claire's blood and other fluids, and I'm pretty sure her body had to be exhumed, which had to have been awful for the parents, but the fact that them letting this happen really, really stopped Beverly from doing more, so I know it really must have been heartbreaking to exhume your child's body, but at least it had, like, a lot of good to it, too. That's why, you know, Beverly Allett wasn't able to hurt anybody else. So... When they tested her blood, there was something that was found and something very important found that was very strange. So Claire's blood showed signs of lignocaine, which is also known as lidocaine. Um, it's a drug used during cardiac arrest, but one that's never, ever used on babies. So lidocaine, and I, this is, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm going to assume. So lidocaine is basically a topical numbing agent. At least as far as I know it. I'm not sure what it's used in the medical field. This is pure speculation, but it could be for maybe when they do um, the things, the the clear, the chest things. I can't think of what that's called now. Maybe they do it so it doesn't hurt. I have no idea. Pure speculation. They might inject it to do something. I should have looked that up. That's my bad. If you want to know about that, I'll look it up and tell you next time. How about that? <laughs> I realized just now that I was like, wow, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, so it's never used on infants, though. They don't ever, ever use it on infants. So, Beverly, our girl Beverly, was a huge suspect, even initially. Like, she had been with all the victims alone before each attack, and high levels of insulin were found in most, and previously she had reported the key to the insulin refrigerator was missing, so she was like, oh, I don't know where the key to the refrigerator is, but she knew. Um, Records were reviewed, parents were interviewed, and security camera security cameras were installed. So on November, in November, I don't know the exact date, um, Beverly Allett was formally charged with murder. So she, of course, denied, excuse me, she denied all accusations against her, but when police searched her house, they found nursing logs, which had previously gone missing, and when the police looked into Beverly's psychological background, they found symptoms of Munchausen syndromes, syndrome and Munchausen by proxy. Um, so the idea was that she had started hurting herself for attention, but then when that stopped working, she started hurting her patients for attention. So no matter what sort of prompting occurred, Beverly refused to admit ever, even now, ever, that she had ever done anything wrong. She was charged with four counts of murder, 11 counts of attempted murder, and 11 counts of grievous 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 bodily, bodily harm. That, that, does, that doesn't feel right. You know what I mean. Um, so while she awaited trial, she developed anorexia, anorexia, and she lost five stone, which is 70 pounds. So, so from November to February, she lost 70 pounds. So just to put it into perspective of how just insane this whole case is, Beverly Allett had attacked 13 children in 59 days, killing four of them in a hospital. Just keep that in your mind. So her trial started on February 15th, 1993. Ooh, that doesn't... 
those dates don't add up. Well, I think the trial date's right, so it must have taken her longer to lose the weight. Because she was formally charged in November of 1991. Her trial started on February 15th, 1993. So she lost 70 pounds in two years. That doesn't seem that crazy. Unless she was super skinny to begin with. I don't know her starting weight. Whatever. Well, we're moving onward. Her trial started on February 15th, 1993. How about that? (laughs) The jurors were told about how she'd been there for every suspicious episode and how no suspicious episodes occurred when she wasn't there. She was also linked, more or less, to the elevated levels of insulin in each victim, and she was accused of smothering her patients as well, which I think would come from the baby with the broken ribs who couldn't breathe. Like, a baby just doesn't accidentally break six of their ribs, so I'm assuming that's where that accusation came from. So, the trial lasted two months. Uh, She was only in attendance for 16 days because of her illness. She was convicted on May 28th, 1993, and given 13 life sentences for murder and attempted murder. Um, So apparently in the UK, no sentence this harsh had ever been given to a female before. Because of her psychiatric issues, she wasn't sent to a normal prison, but Rampton Secure Hospital, which is a high-security psychiatric hospital. So Beverly is still incarcerated, and I'm sure she will be for the rest of her life. She is now 50 years old. And, um, yeah, that's, that's all I got for this. Uh, this one's kind of a short one. I also, because once again, I didn't know, I didn't realize she wasn't who I thought she was. (laughs) All I'm going to keep saying is that I wasn't aware. Um, yeah, so that's that. This is me and this is Cabernet and True Crime, the podcast. If you would like to hear any specific um, podcasts or anything. I schedule kind of far in advance, but I'm willing to, you know, take suggestions and shimmy things around and move stuff around for people if they want it. Um, if you don't already follow Cabernet and True Crime, if you want to become a patron, I put out two extra episodes every month for patrons, and there's a whole bunch of extra content, like I said, research notes, which include, like, pictures and links that I used and site, site, citations. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't feel right. My bibliography (laughs) of how I, in the midst of everything happening in the true crime community right now, believe me, I, I try to cite everything I can because I'm not trying to get got and have a lawsuit against me for something. (laughs) You know, I don't have the money to win a lawsuit. So that's preferred, uh, not a preferred outcome. Um, so the Instagram, follow that, post new stuff every day um yeah and this and I have a YouTube channel as well there's just a whole bunch going on if you follow the uh Instagram basically it tells you what's going on every day so that's always a good stuff a good place to see where new stuff's coming out and I have trivia so it's all kinds of fun all kinds of good things are going on um so thank you for listening and I'll stop rambling right now and I'll shut the fuck up and let you live your day so have a good happy wonderful true crime Tuesday Thank you.